John Abruzzo is alive today for one reason and one reason only, because his friends carried him, literally. John was working at 8.45 a.m. in his office on the 69th floor of the World Trade Center South Tower on September 11th, 2001. That's when the first hijacked plane hit the North Tower. Immediately, his office uh, went into confusion and panic, and people began running toward the exits, realizing that some sort of unimaginable catastrophe was about to happen. Everybody ran for the exit, that is, except for John Abruzzo. Because John has been a quadriplegic since he was paralyzed in a diving accident when he was 17 years old. The elevators no longer worked, and so John's motorized wheelchair uh, was not going to get John to safety. And he sat there in his chair thinking, well, this is it. I can't get down 69 flights of steps in my wheelchair. This is all she wrote. And as they ran for the exit, one group of eight people in his office stopped and looked back at John and realized his situation. Seven men and one woman realized that the choice they had in front of them was either saving their own lives, probably for sure if they left immediately, or trying to save John's life at great risk to their own lives. And so they stopped and looked at each other and knew they had to go back to John. And so they went to John, who is 6'4 and weighs 250 pounds, and they decided, well, what are we going to do? And one of them went searching for an evacuation sled, and they found one, and they strapped John to it. Now, the sled itself weighs 150 pounds, and so these eight people carried a 400-pound weight, if it was evenly distributed, that's 50 pounds a, a person, and they started going down the 69 flights of steps. After just a few minutes, the whole building shuddered. That's when the second plane hit the tower that they were in. After an hour, they were on the 20th floor, and that's when the North Tower next to them collapsed, and all of the power in their building went out. And so now they're in pitch darkness going down the final 20 floors, bearing this weight, getting more and more tired. Meanwhile, hundreds, probably thousands of people stream past them, not one offering to help, incidentally. By the time they got down to the lobby, there was nobody left running down the stairs. They were probably the last people to leave the building safely. And the lobby just looked like a war zone. There was overturned furniture, and it was filled with thick, acrid smoke. And as they trudged with John in tow out the front doors, a firefighter was surprised to see them still coming out of the building. And he yelled at them, run for your lives. And so with a, a last ounce of strength, they picked up the sled and they sprinted as fast as they could with John about two and a half blocks down the street to a church where a lot of people found safety. Ten minutes at the most after they left the building, the entire South Tower collapsed. John Abruzzo is alive today because his friends 
carried him. I read an interview with John this week, and he says, looking back on it, he has no words to express the debt that he owes to his friends. He said, we all had our lives to lose. What they did, I don't know. Do you just say, thank you? After something like that, I literally don't think there are words to express what I owe to them. That true story is a great example of our main verse in the text of the Bible we're going to look at today. It's from Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. I'm going to put it on the screen, and I want you to read this out loud with me. Let me hear you read this together. Here we go. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Let's talk about what that means. Grab your message notes that look like this free is what we've been calling our series in the book of Galatians. Just to review, if you're just joining us in this series, in chapter 5, Paul has been telling the Galatians over and over and over again that the Christian faith is not about legalism. It's not about some dry system of rules. Instead, this is what it's all about. He says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through what? Love. Love. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not indulge, uh, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in what? Love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. What? Love your neighbor as yourself. What Paul is trying to do is to get the Galatians to move from asking the question, what does law require? That is the question that people who are caught in a legalistic system of religion think is the main question that you should always ask about your religion. What does law require? What's actually kind of in the rule book? And I hear this a lot of times as a pastor when people come up to me and say, Pastor, I want to ask you a question. If I did this, would I be sinning? Or if I did this, would this, would this technically be a sin? Would that, would that, is this a sin? Would God look down and think this was a sin? What they're saying is, I really want to sin, but I think I found a loophole. You know, can I do this thing? And that's legalistic thinking, right? What does the law require? I, I want to do what the law technically says, but I don't really want to do anything else, you know? I want to try to have as much fun as I can and look for loopholes to get around the commandments that are in the Bible. And that's what you, you get to when, you're, when your religion is based on a legalistic mindset. What we've been calling in this series the temple model mindset. That's the question you're always going to end up thinking is the crucial question in your faith. What does law require? And in Jesus' day in the first century, this was the main question that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the temple lawyers were always asking. And what Paul is saying is you have to move beyond that to asking this question, what does love require? What does love require? That's what it's all about. Because when you think about it, there are a lot less loopholes in this question. Because then you're not asking the question, well, could I, could I technically steal? Could I lie? Could I like indulge myself this way? No, because if you steal, you are hurting somebody and that's not loving. And if you lie, you're hurting somebody and that's not loving. And, and, and the reason you shouldn't commit adultery is not just because it's one of the commandments, but because you're breaking somebody's heart and that's not loving. There's no loopholes in love. 
Now, I know at first, to some of you going, wait a minute, if I move from what does law require to what does love require, this all kinds sounds very kind of 1967, summer of love kind of weirdness, you know, sort of a... I'm just tripping out on love all the time, man, you know, like, uh, well, frankly, like Santa Cruz is uh, every day of the week. So um, the rest of the nation left that behind in 67, but we're still right there, right? But actually, if you look at the history of the early Christian church, they, they, they caught what I think might have been the original vision of kind of the summer of love, much better, uh, much better than the hippies and the Haight-Ashbury did back in 1967. In fact, look at Acts chapter 2. It, it describes the Christians, right? And it says, From time to time, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. You know, I look at that and I think, who would not want to be a part of that, for one thing? And secondly, it can happen again. That can happen again. Do you believe that? That can happen again, and it can happen right here. And when it does happen, look at what happens. They enjoyed the favor of all the people because people, even people who don't believe what we believe, even people who think that maybe they're kind of weirdos over there uh, going to church and talking about a risen Savior, they look at a, a body, a community doing this, and they think, but boy, those people love. And they not only love each other, they love the whole community. And this was the reputation of the church in the first century. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. We've been talking about the world's biggest garage sale thing. This verse was the original inspiration five years ago for that whole thing that we call the world's biggest garage sale. My wife and I and a couple of friends of ours were, were looking at this verse, and we thought to ourselves, it says from time to time they sold possessions and they gave whatever came in to the poor. We can do that. That sounds like a garage sale to us. Let's just do that. And it started small, and it's just gotten so big. And I, I, I don't know if you caught what Val said. A hundred percent of the proceeds go to Second Harvest because they're so efficient at feeding the poor. We use Second Harvest food here through our own People's Pantry Ministries. But last year, $50,000 raised through Second Harvest through the world's biggest garage sale. That's in quarters, you know. Uh, it's amazing. But why do we do this? Because there's, there's not a command. The law doesn't require this. There's no commandment that says, thou shalt sell some of your possessions from time to time and give your money to the poor. You could keep all the Ten Commandments and never do that. But love requires that you do that. When you see people who are needy and you love them with the love of Jesus Christ, you go, I want to do that because you start feeling the love of God for them. So Paul's been talking to the Galatians saying, you know, this is the direction that you want to move as Christians. Instead of being focused just on legalism, I want you to focus on love. And in this part of Galatians, he really starts getting very practical about what it looks like to live a, a grace-focused, kind of love-focused faith. And specifically, the first kind of application he makes is grace can give you freedom in your relationships. Relationships are so important to God. God is all about relationships. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that he can have a relationship with you and me. I mean, he paid for that by dying on the cross for you. That's a, a huge, huge price to pay just for a relationship. And God is love. We sang earlier, our God is three in one. Why do Christians talk about the Trinity? Because it means that before there were even any created beings, God as the Trinity was existing in a love relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
God has been loving, loving as a trinity. He exists for relationship. He exists in relationship. The Bible says that God is love. In fact, the only thing in the whole creation that God looked at and said, this is not so good, was when man was alone. And so God created relationships to bless us. The problem is that selfishness and sin entered the world, and it fractured what God wanted to be a good thing. And today, relationships can be very draining. In fact, relationships can be dry. In fact, relationships can even kill you. They can rob your joy. And so God wants you to rediscover what he originally intended for relationships. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul shows what the trouble that is at the root of so many relationship problems. And there's three things I want to look at here. What's the problem with our relationships today? What's the solution? And what does this look like in real daily life? And especially on this first point, on the first page, I'm very indebted to a great book called Galatians for You by Timothy Keller, where he talks about this and includes uh, the chart that I have there at the bottom of this first page. So first, what is the problem? What's the problem with our relationships? Well, I think the key is in this verse, Galatians 5.26. And let's read this together. I'm going to put it on screen for you. Here we go. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. There is so much in this verse. But let's just focus on three words. Because the reason, really, for why all relationships fall apart is the word that's translated here, conceited. Now, this is one of those Greek words that is really hard to find an English language equivalent for. If you go back to the old English translations, like the old King James Version, it translates this as vainglory. That's actually a really good word, vainglory. It translates the meaning of this really well, but today that doesn't get any traction, right? It doesn't get anywhere with people that are glory. What does that mean? So let's explore this. The Greek word used here is the word kenodoxa. Keno means empty. And doxa means glory, like in the word doxology. And so this word literally means empty of glory. A glory vacuum. Deep inside of us, we have a problem. And the problem is this. We feel empty of glory because in and of ourselves, we are empty of glory. Deep inside of ourselves, we know that we don't matter. See, the word glory in the Bible basically means weight, weight. If something has weight, it has matter right? It, has, it, it weighs something. It has mass. And so when we say, ah, that doesn't matter, we, we are literally saying something is no weight. It's featherweight. It has no glory. That doesn't matter. And this is the problem that's in all of us. We're empty of glory. We feel like we don't matter. We don't count. We have no weight. We have no glory. I know it seems like the opposite of what it's translated, conceited in English, but what it means in the original language is empty of glory. And when you feel you are empty of glory, that your life is weightless, that it has no mass, that it doesn't matter. What happens is you desperately want to find a way to prove you matter, that you are somebody. Now, let me read you a quote to illustrate this. But before I tell you who I'm quoting, 
I want to qualify this because this person's public persona carries some baggage. And I'm kind of worried that when you hear this quote, uh, some people are going to go, oh, Renee's putting that person down. And I like that person. How can he put that person down? Or you're going to go, oh, yeah, she is weird. Renee's using her as an example of a wicked woman because she is. But actually, one of the reasons that I want to read this quote is that this woman is really in touch with the condition of the human soul, including hers. She is not weird. She is normal, according to Scripture. Her name is Valerie Webb. No, her name is... <laughs> Close. Her name is Madonna. <laughs> And in Vogue magazine, she said this in an interview. She said, I have an iron will, and here's why. I'm struggling with fear. Now listen to this. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And then I find a way to get myself out of that again and again and uh, again. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. That's what's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove to myself that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I don't think it ever will. Now, maybe you say, there's a really messed up person. That's not what the Bible says. It says that there's a really average person. In fact, that is every person deep down. What humans really fear is to be found worthless, meaningless, weightless. And so this word means deep insecurity leading to a need to prove my worth to myself and others. We are desperately trying to feel worthy. And what happens is we sort of see others as ahead of us or below us. And that leads to these next couple of words. The word provoking. That basically means to look down on. The word literally means to call out or challenge somebody. Like you. Yeah, 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 you. You know what? How, how dare you talk to me that way? How dare you? I'm better than you. Don't you know that? You know, that kind of provoking, kind of poking somebody in the chest to prove your superiority. That's what this word means. It's the posture of the superior mindset, looking down on others. While envying is the opposite of that. Envying is looking down on people. It's not, it's not looking down on people that you feel superior to. It's looking up to people that you feel inferior to and going, why can't I have what they have? Why can't I have their talents? Why can't I have their looks? That's the posture of the inferior mindset, looking up at others. And basically, those are two halves of the same coin, feeling inferior, feeling superior. And it is very difficult not to fall into one of these in every relationship. Hey, true confession time. I'm a pastor, okay? Uh, news to you, right? But uh, so I visit churches. I love to go and visit churches, right? And when I visit churches and listen to sermons, I am so surprised at how, without even trying, quickly, one of two thoughts 
in my human nature will pop into my head. I could do better than this. <laughs> you call this a sermon? <laughs> if my wife is sitting next to me, I'm like writing down, here's where he's wrong, you know? <laughs> or I could never preach like that. I may as well quit. I'm going to quit, honey. I seriously, I'm going to quit my job. What driving home, I'll like, I can't, I can't, I could never be as good as that person I just heard at, at the Mount Hermon conference. I'm going to become an ice cream scooper at Marianne's because I'm, I'm worthless as a bastard. And so what happens is you're swinging on this trapeze all the time. I'm better than you. I stink compared to them. Right? Now, most of us are a mixture of the two, but we tend toward either provoking or envying other people as an outworking of our own struggles with weightlessness or vainglory. So which are you? What do you tend toward? Look at the chart there at the bottom of your notes. Maybe you tend toward provoking there on the left. That's where you have a superiority mindset. Like you tend to blow up, right, in confrontations. Like somebody cuts you off in the car and you roll down the window. Hey, do you realize who I am? You know, like the women's conference speaker said yesterday, somebody, somebody cut her off and, and she, she literally found herself just the other day doing this, you know. <laughs> I got my eyes on you. She said, she goes, I don't know why I did this, but I took a picture of the back of their car and posted it on Facebook. This person cut me off. You know, that's a superiority mindset. That's provoking. <laughs> or I pick arguments, right, actually. Or I tend to judge harshly. Or I attack when criticized. Or I say things like, I'd never be that stupid, right? <laughs> or on the right-hand side, you tend to have an inferiority uh, mindset. That's, that's what you tend to clam up. You tend to avoid confrontation because you think this, this person could run rings around me with their verbal skill, so I'm not even going to get into that argument. I'm, I'm intimidated around certain people. I get discouraged. I get defensive. I think, I could never be that awesome, right? Listen, all of us struggle with some sense of this, and it messes up our relationships. So what's the solution to this? Page two. In the previous verse, verse 25, Paul says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We talked about this at length last week. Keep in step with the Spirit. That means step by step, day by day, I'm living in the awareness of God's grace. I remind myself, I'm saved by God's grace, not by my own efforts. I'm beloved by God. I'm covered by the blood of Christ. I am precious in his sight. Jesus died and was buried and was raised to life for me. And what happens is when daily I find my glory in God's value of me and not in comparison to others or in the opinions of others, then I will finally be free to truly love others. Does that make sense? When finally I find my glory in God's value of me and not in comparison to others or in the opinions of others, then I am free to truly love other people. See, if I'm still under that legalistic, law-oriented temple model of religion, it makes that situation we described on page one even worse because I either get superior, proud, provoking if I feel like I'm winning the game, if I feel like I'm keeping the rules better than anybody else, I get overly confident and I get judgmental on other people, or if I feel like I'm losing because I'm not keeping the rules right, I put myself down and I feel like slime, I feel inferior, I feel envious. Legalism just makes all of that even worse. Grace humbles me 
because I realize, hey, I'm just a savior saved by, a sinner saved by God's grace. And grace emboldens me because the most important eyes in the universe are looking at me with love and are, are empowering me with God's strength. Only the gospel of grace can make you bold without pride and humble without self-disdain. Only grace. And the way this works out practically in relationships is if I find myself being really defensive around somebody, I think, well, wait a minute. What that person thinks of me is not the most important thing. That person's approval actually doesn't matter. God's approval matters, and that is a settled issue, not based on my performance. It's settled unconditionally simply because I've received his offer of grace. My identity at my core is as a child of the king. Abba is my father. He loves me. That's what matters. So I don't have to get defensive around this person. Or if I find myself looking down on somebody with superiority, I think, whoa, whoa, whoa there. I am just as much of a sinner, just as undeserving of grace as they are. And my primary message to this person is good news, not judgment, the good news of God's grace to them just as I've been graced. Now, point three, what does this look like in real life? Well, there's a lot of things, but Paul gives two quick application series. He says, first of all, restore the fallen. Don't kick somebody when they're down. Restore the fallen. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. The word restore in this verse in the Greek was used for setting a broken bone and for mending a fishing net. How many people here have ever had a broken bone? Can I see a show of hands? How many of you have had a broken bone? Wow, seriously? This is like an accident-prone crowd. Let me see that hand again. Show it. How many of you had more than one broken bone? More than one. Really? How many of you more than two? No, we can keep going, but um, <clears throat> we should have a prize for like the most, you know, five or more. No. Um, if you've ever had a broken bone, all of you raised your hands. You know how painful that can be, right? And you know, listen, how a doctor sets that bone can make your pain much worse even as he tries to help you heal. That's why it says restore gently. When a friend is down, when a friend is hurt by sin, you don't announce it to the world. You know, look at this idiot. You don't drop kick them. You don't try to ruin their reputation. You do what you can to help them. But, Paul says, we should be careful in helping or we might fall into the same trap as our friend. But watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. How many times have you read around here in the news of people who have been drowning off the coast and then somebody jumps in to rescue them who's not a skilled lifeguard and they drown, right? you got to be very, very careful. Now, before I move on, I just want to note Paul does not specify the sins involved here. And he does not go legalistically into some precise pattern that we are to follow. That's another thing. I, I talked about, you know, what does the law require? Another question I get a lot as a pastor is, how long do I have to be gentle with somebody before I can just kick them, you know? <laughs> can it be like six months of restoration before I just sock them in the face, you know? Technically, how long? Paul doesn't go into that detail. This verse is about an overall willingness to get involved and promote restoration, the precise details, the time involved, are going to vary from case to case, from person to person. Don't get all legalistic about this. Just as no one medicine cures all diseases, 
There's no magic formula that works in every case to bring somebody back. He just says, be compassionate and be careful. And the second example he gives is this, help the hurting. Help the hurting. The verse we started with, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. The word used for burden here refers to an overwhelming load weighing you down as you stagger along the highway of life. Now, that might be all kinds of things in different people. Sickness, personal loss, financial difficulties, broken dreams, a broken marriage, family problems, career setbacks, the, the death of a loved one, feelings of depression. I think it's significant that Paul does not focus on what the burden is because that doesn't matter. What matters is when you see your brother or sister staggering under a burden, unable to get out of their situation by themselves, you do what John Abruzzo's friends did. You stop and you look back and you realize this person is going nowhere without help. And you go back and you help. Now, there's more needs around you than you can deal with. That's why we're in a body, in a community called a church. And that's why together as a big church, we share the load of the people who are down. That's why as a church, we have things like the Stephen ministry to help carry the burdens of those who are down. But it's important to do it. I'm going to show you an interesting clip that illustrates this. This story was on ABC News last fall. Watch this. There's a story getting plenty of attention online right now, and it really comes down to one picture. Yeah, high school cross-country meet. There's the picture. A girl from one team carrying a girl from a different team to the finish line. Melanie Bailey stopped and helped out this young lady, Danielle Lanoue, after Danielle had injured her knee. Uh, it looks pretty painful. They finished the race in Minnesota together, nearly 10 minutes behind the winner. But, man, with sportsmanship conduct like that, we congratulate both of them. Wait a minute now. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> so the young lady could have, I mean, was she compete? Was she, did she have a chance to win the race? And she, she stopped was and picked in the up race and she stopped and picked her up and put her on her back on top of that. Not just picked her up, right? Like literally put her on her back and uh, finished the race. Well, she's a better woman than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ron Burgundy, right? I mean, uh, insert your comment about the intelligence of anchor people here. But anyway, she's a better woman than I am, too. Because listen, if you think the goal of life is to win the race, to finish first, you're right. He's exactly right. Stopping and helping people is going to interfere with your achievements. It's going to get in the way of the daily to-do list. Absolutely it will. But if you think the goal of life as a Christian, that part of the profile of what it means to win as a Christian is to stop and help those who fall by the wayside, then you're going to carry another's burdens because that's why, one of the reasons why, you are in the race. Paul says, by doing so, you fulfill the law of Christ. Now, I have a question for you. Why in the world would somebody not want to do this? Well, Paul talks about this. Man, he's, he's just so good in the next two verses. He says, hey, uh, if anybody thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each should test his own actions, and then he can take pride in himself 
without, here it is again, without comparing himself to somebody else. It's so easy to look down your nose and say, oh, they deserve it. <laughs> She's so weak. Guess they just couldn't handle the pressure. You know what? I saw this coming. I saw it coming. Maybe they're going to listen to me the next time, but right now I don't want to get involved. I'm just glad it's them and not me. I, I would never do something like that. When people are under a burden, we are so quick to condemn, to look away, to pass by on the other side. But in these verses, Paul puts his finger right on the problem, and this is the bottom line. The biggest problem in relationships is personal pride. If you think you are something special, you will find it so easy to condemn people. But if I understand grace, without it, I'm nothing. With it, I have everything. I am going to be more forgiving and less insecure, right? More forgiving because I know I am nothing apart from the grace of God and less insecure because I know in God's grace I'm completely forgiven and free. So I don't have to prove my superiority to anybody else and I don't have to feel inferior to anybody else because God and I are good by His grace. And this makes a difference in every relationship. I'm going to close not with a story this morning, but with a song. Our worship pastor, Trent Smith, actually wrote a song about the kind of advice that Jesus would give to you and to me if he were here today and he were to say, you know what, if, if you want grace to infuse every relationship, here's how to start. I'm going to have Trent come back and uh, sing this song and let's just prepare our hearts to hear it in a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace. Help all of my relationships to reflect your grace. I don't have to feel superior. I don't have to feel inferior. Help us to solve all of that, all of the issues of our pride, of our vain glory, by just soaking in your grace. And God, especially right now, if there's somebody here who is hearing all this saying, man, this sounds really good to me. I thought Christianity was about asking the question, what does the law require? But if it's about asking what does love require as modeled for me and as I am powered by the risen Jesus, well then, I'm in. And you may want to just pray this prayer right now. Lord, help me receive your grace. God, I I, I am opening myself up to you. I'm surrendering my will, my pride to you right now, God, because you forgave me and saved me by your grace and your grace alone. Help me reflect that throughout my entire life, starting with my closest relationships. In Jesus' name, amen.
fathers and mothers cling to each other. Give love and give enough as I have given you. Spend time together and listen better. Cause when pride is cast aside, hope will see you through. Sisters and brothers, love one another. Make grace your resting place as you walk alone. Share wine and after music and laughter. Oh, tears may return one day, but hope will lead you home. children free and forgiven we know that here below the waiting seems so long but your names are near you are never forgotten and when I return 